0: Well, We're in Ecclesiastes. We've been in it for a little while. It's a strange book. It can feel repetitive at times. It's one of these odd books in that it's a bit gloomy and morbid, and I found some of you actually enjoy the morbidness of it. I don't know what that says about you. For the rest of you, though, I want to remind you of this, that even as we go through this book, that's very drastically different than Philippians, uh, with some of these darker ideas and, and and thinking and the just strangeness of it. I want to remind you that this is part of what 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 is talking about when it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Really, that's just to say that it, this doesn't just satisfy our curiosity about the world, but it actually changes us. That's the word of God. Our passage today is going to touch on these four areas of wickedness in the world. It really does a major theme, and and we'll get into the details of what those are as we move through here. But uh, like I said, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to do like we've been doing recently. We're going to read a portion to start with, and then we'll read the rest of it as we get further along uh, in the sermon. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun... That in the place of justice, even there, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and... Man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of a beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach this text in Ecclesiastes today, we ask for you to give us understanding that we might not read it in a vacuum, but in the context of all that you have revealed to your people through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we see the wickedness that is in the world and in our own hearts, may we rejoice that you have not left us to carry the weight of that on our shoulders, that you have sent a Savior who has carried it all the way to the cross, and that you will redeem the world and all who call in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would give me wisdom to preach your word today, faithfully. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. So there's one question that's come up constantly, really just about every conversation I've ever had with someone who doubts that God exists. The question is, how can you believe in a loving God who allows for... And at that point, some major injustice, some major evil, some tragedy is, is stated. And that becomes the question How can I believe in a God who creates a, a tsunami, who destroys so many people? How can I believe in a God who allows 9 11 to happen? Or allowed what happened with Hitler to happen? Or who, how can I believe in a God who allows for my, my friend's daughter to get cancer? And for honest, many Christians struggle with these, making sense out of the world that we live in as well. We find ourselves wanting to defend the reputation of God. We we want to take over His PR department for Him because it seems to not be working at times. And we find ourselves frustrating, asking the same question that Solomon's asking here in verse 16, which is essentially, why is there so much suffering and death and wickedness in the world? Why? I think it's helpful to understand that when we read Solomon here, that he doesn't view the world through rose-colored lenses. He sees it as it really is. And here in verse 16, he focuses on wickedness in the form of injustice. When he says the place of justice, he's speaking of an official capacity. That is, the court of justice. Even then, they had that. And we can understand that because in our culture, we value justice. At least we value this concept of justice very highly. In the Western world, we even have this image that immediately uh, is recognizable by most of us, this image of of Lady Justice. I'm sure you've seen her before. She can be seen in courtrooms and outside of courthouses all over the United States. Lady Justice is a a blindfolded woman who's holding a scale in in one hand and a sword in another hand. The scale is for properly weighing the evidence in any given case. And the sword is for executing justice that can be dealt out to either party that's been involved in this. The blindfold, of course, is because her justice should be objective, should not be influenced by personal relationships or bribes or or anything else that might tempt her towards corruption. The point is, we expect justice in, in all places to exist in the court of justice. However, then, just like now, it's often not the case, and that can be a very depressing thing when we come to realize it, when we see injustice happening in the world. Uh, Yet, even if this is what we observe in the world, it doesn't make it right. That much we know. It's helpful to remember that it's only because God has given us an understanding uh, of what justice is that we can even grieve the lack of justice in the world to begin with. See, Solomon's not looking to convince you in this that there is perfect justice in the world. In fact, really what he's trying to show you is is for you to feel the weight of what it means to live in a sinful world. A sinful world after the fall. One where injustice is common. And and his response then is is confidence that God will in his own good timing judge the righteous and the wicked. We don't know when that judgment is. We don't. However, we can and we should respond by trusting God who says that he will render judgment in its proper time. We also know that as the children of God, we are called to do justice. We even see that in Micah 6.8, this famous verse that says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The rest of of chapter thir- three here then, consists of pointing out that we as humans are, are similar to the animals which God has also created. That like animals, we live and we die and our bodies become dust. Morbid, right? Keep in mind that King Solomon is not denying that humans are made in the image of God. He's not denying that we're above the animals. And that we are the high point of God's creation. He's also not suggesting in verse 21 here that at death we are annihilated, that we are reduced to simply not existing anymore. And we know this because in chapter 12, Solomon himself is going to speak of God bringing our life into judgment. The end. This assumes that there is existence after death. We also know because we see it all over in in Scripture. The question for us here then is, is why speak this way? Why sound like that? And he does it because he's looking at, at life under the sun. He's, he's speaking of what we can observe here. Really from a view of, of faithless empirical evidence. See, his point is this. We, we don't see what happens to the soul of man or animal at the point of death. At the funeral, we can't sit there and with our eyes see that, that the soul goes one way or the soul goes another way. With our eyes, we can't even see that there's a soul to begin with. In verse 20 then, the one place that he says we all go to is is not speaking about whether it's heaven or hell, he's speaking about the dirt, physically. He's talking about the way our physical bodies turn into dust. Really he's paraphrasing Genesis 3.19 which says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to the dust you shall return. Now, we're certainly different than animals. That's not a question. We write books. We read books. We build buildings. We create smartphones. We invent sports, some of them better than others. We fall in love. Yet, just like animals, our physical bodies will return to dust. And in that particular sense, we are more like animals than we are like God. That's what we read in Psalm 49.12, which says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. Because you see, death is inevitable for both animals and humans. And unlike animals, we can actually contemplate what our own death is like or what is coming. We can think about that. We can dwell on that. Because cats don't ponder their death. I don't think. That's probably not a fair comparison. No, cats don't do much of anything. But dogs don't don't ponder their death. Eagles don't ponder their death. Horses don't ponder their death animals just don't think about their, their own death or what comes after life is over. Now, unfortunately, we as humans often live like animals. We choose never to dwell on our own mortality. You're probably familiar with the agnostic filmmaker Woody Allen. He recently put into words what many people today, even Christians, have put into practice. See, he says he refuses to dwell on the meaning of life Uh, In light of the fact that, really, he's going to be dead at some point, and yet he refuses to ever think about it, he said, that's all you can do. You get up, you can be distracted by your love life, by the baseball game, by the movies, by the nonsense. Can I get my kid into this private school? Will this girl go out with me on Saturday night? Can I think of an ending for the third act of my play? Am I going to get the promotion in my office? All this stuff. But in the end, the universe burns out, so I think it's completely meaningless, and be honest my characters portray this feeling have a good weekend he ends it kind of jokingly Uh, but that's no way to live see truth is it would be beneficial for all of us to think more on our own mortality than we actually do I remember hearing a story about an order of Trappist monks some years ago and these Trappist monks would work together to to dig a single grave and then every day they would go out to this grave and they would look over the edge into this six-foot hole and there they would ponder their own life, and they would ponder their own death. When one of the members of this, this order would die, they'd take them out there, and they would place them in the hole, and they would cover them with dirt. Then they'd dig another hole, and the ritual would start again. See, they never knew who was going to be the next to die, the next one to be in that hole. They never knew if they were digging their own hole. And We also see this with uh, philosophers in the, in the past. I don't think this would work today. Uh, But they would keep an actual human skull on their desk, as a reminder of their own mortality. Uh, The Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, was a little less morbid. In his resolutions, he wrote, resolved to think much on all occasions on my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. What about you? Do you think often about your own death? And why? Why not? I mean, how many of us actually practice what we see Woody Allen speaking of, just distraction? simply push it out and not consider it. I wonder, because does it bring you to, to live now with better clarity towards what's important or does it drive you to despair to think about this question? Ernest Hemingway, who actually lived in Kansas City not far from here at one point, uh, was a man that lived under the sun. He denied that God existed, and as death over him, uh, over him, he once wrote, life is just a dirty trick from nothingness to nothingness. You can see why he didn't write greeting cards his response though is consistent consistent with a view that believes that after death we cease to exist Um, however today because of the revelation which has come to us through Jesus Christ we we certainly have a better understanding uh, of what happens to us after death because of the gospel we we can ponder our death with a joyful outlook uh, not as an opiate for the masses, but as a truth that sets prisoners free. John 11:25, Jesus is speaking to Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then a few chapters later, when Jesus is, is speaking to the disciples in John 14:1 through 3, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. We also read in Romans 6.23, I'm giving you a few of these to understand. In the New Testament, we gain this better understanding of what happens after death. In Romans 6.23, you probably know it, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, scripture is clear that those who have faith in Christ will dwell with him for all of eternity. And those who do not believe in Christ will face eternal punishment. And we don't like to talk about that. That makes a room very uncomfortable very quickly because eternal judgment is just a sobering reality. It's also, however, revealed in the word of God to be true. We can't deny it, and even if we do, it doesn't remove the fact that it's true. Solomon's conclusion this portion is this common theme that we've seen all throughout Ecclesiastes regarding work. In verse 22 he writes, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. What we know is that both animals and humans can work. But only humans are created in the image of God. And only humans are capable of, of both enjoying their work and enjoying the things that their work actually produces. For followers of Christ, there's an even greater sense that we can enjoy our work because it doesn't have to carry the weight of being our ultimate purpose. Now, in Ecclesiastes 4, it shifts a little bit. Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3, we we see this wickedness of oppression. It reads, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, And there was no one to comfort them. I thought those who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Three times in that very first verse we see this word oppression or some form of the word oppression. We get a better understanding of what oppression is in Leviticus 6 where it begins to explain it. It shows us that oppression is when we begin to cheat a neighbor, when we begin to rob a neighbor. It's when we seek to profit, and we don't care what happens to someone else in the process of that accumulation. See, Solomon sees just how wicked and and painful oppression is. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't try to paint it in some better way. He just observes that's what we see in the world, and, and that's what drives him to this point of saying it would be better to have never been born. See, the prophet Jeremiah responds in a similar fashion. When when he observes the pain of life, he, he writes, and this is from Jeremiah twenty eighteen, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? It's that same statement. I wish I'd never been born. See, scripture speaks often of, of how God desires his people to fight oppression. Yet that's not what the point of this, this passage is here. And I want to be careful that we don't chase down a rabbit trail. Simply put, though, what we see here is that oppression... It is wicked and that it exists in the world that we live in under the sun. However, don't neglect the opportunities that you have to be doers of the word, to, to be those who will seek to help those who are truly oppressed in this culture or any culture. I also want to add these words of Sean O'Donnell who says, The church needs more William Wilberforces, but it also needs quiet, good Samaritans who are busy mending one wounded traveler. Visiting one shut in, adopting one orphan, funding one refugee. Now, this last section today deals with motives, motives regarding our, our work or our lack of work. And and even as I thought about this, uh, how our sinful nature is uh, is applied to work, it, it gave me this this reminder of something I had read long ago, and so I looked it up for you. It's the ten property laws of toddlers. Um, it's really just a humorous list that gives these ten ways that toddlers determine what belongs to them. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) Unfortunately, not a lot changes from toddler to adult. I want you to follow along as we read this portion, Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 6. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. So why do we work? Why do we do it? And the answer that Solomon gives here is is that too often our motivation for work is is envy of some sort. This flies right in the face, however, of of a right view of vocation, Uh, a view that work is a calling and not just a means to some selfish end. Uh, And yet ever since the beginning of time, people have climbed over each other to get to the top. That's something we've come to just basically accept companies competing against each other employees are are out to destroy each other so that they can go rise higher within the company we even have this phrase in our culture you've got to look out for number one and that's considered a fine thing to say to someone it's also quite different than the phrase that Jesus Christ gave us you shall love your neighbor as yourself see our culture has this messed up view of vocation of work we tend to think of it as this necessary evil, a, a means to an end, a, a hurdle in the way of our leisure. And yet if you, if you see this, you remember that in the Garden of Eden, they didn't just live in leisure. This was an actual paradise that God had made, this Garden of Eden. And, and yet the idea wasn't that they just lounged around drinking pina coladas on the beach. That's almost what you expect it to be. No, in fact, they work. They cared for the garden because work is part of our design even before the fall. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. It's no wonder then that modern research and just about everyone's personal experience can, has shown that, that people who are not working often become depressed. See, when God created us, he had work in mind. It wasn't just for us to lay it down in leisure. Uh, make sure you understand what work is, though. It's, it's not just what you get paid for. That's not the only way we're to view work. It's, it's doing, it's producing, it's creating, it's teaching, it's, it's serving. See, we tend to think of, of work as... Uh, being the CEO or, or some sort of 9-to-5 job as an employee. And, and it is those things. But it's also managing your home or raising children. It's, it's taking 12 hours of classes in the university. It's serving people over at the food pantry and numerous other ways of actually outdoing So the question for us here needs to be, how should a Christian respond to the call to work in a wicked world? How do we respond to that? And Solomon lays out three options here, and he puts them in very strange words, but uh, we'll look at them. The first option is seen in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. I think it's fair to say Solomon played his cards on this one. It's not a good idea. I mean, when you start with the fool, it's clear sign this is not what to do. Uh, The folding of the hands. This is symbolic of someone who has found work frustrating or is just lazy or pointless and has just decided I will not participate in it. And so they fold their hands as a symbol of them refusing to work. And this idea of them eating their own flesh, this cannibalism, as creepy as that sounds, is is just a way of saying that that's going to be the only option for food because they're going to starve to death because of their lack of doing any sort of work. And, And so we understand that this is not a reference to those who are truly unable to work, but rather to people who can work and refuse to, no matter what age we're talking about. Uh, it's what we read about in, in Proverbs 6, 9 through 11, which says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Second Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12, we see something similar. We see this encouragement to Christians and within the church towards being productive. It says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness... Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we commend and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So we can see that opting out is really not a wise option. The second option is seen in verse 6. Solomon uses these words. He says, two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, with this, this hand image. Uh, really, at first, it seems like a good option, a desirable thing. In fact, who doesn't want twice as much of anything that you want? It reminds me of that old, not too old, that Sprint commercial where they ask these children, you know, the, these simple questions, and, and the one who thinks more is better than less. And every single kid's hand goes up. Uh, they all agree about that, and they ask that one little adorable girl, uh, why? Why is this? And she just rambles on and on about, because more, more is more, more and more. Really, what we see in her is being American, 101. More is better. In fact, every so often I've noticed that Quick Trip actually has this deal where it's any size, what do you call it, soda? Any size Coke for 99 cents. And I saw this the first time and my thought was, why would anyone get less than the biggest one? Uh, I couldn't even make sense of that is, as not an option. Why don't they just sell all the big ones for 99 cents? It was just confusing. And, and, and so the image in our text, though, of these two hands cup together trying to carry more. You can almost imagine a a child walking back from trick-or-treating or or something with as much candy or whatever it might be in their hands, and and it's this difficult thing. And so when it puts it this way, it's not a positive thing. It's it's trying to to carry these things, and the things that it lists, this toil and striving. You see, it's hands that have failed to understand that that money is not what life is about. It's, It's what Jesus shares in Luke 12, 15. He says, take care, and And be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And unfortunately, too often, uh, we commit both our hands to the accumulation of stuff. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen fathers who choose work over their families at really every juncture in their life. And often it's this this idea that this is just a short phase of life that will move on. If that were the case, that's one thing. But too often we've seen uh, it's actually a lifestyle that goes on and on and on until they find everyone's grown and it's been... A little late. Uh, Also, as we go through this, be careful that you don't assume this is talking about someone who's richer than you. I think it's very easy for us to say, I know someone who makes more money than me. Therefore, that's not me. I'm one-handed there, too. Really, it has nothing to do with how much money you make. And you need to understand that. It has everything to do with what it costs you to obtain that money. See, you could be the wealthiest person in this room and still living a one-handed life, which we're going to get to in a minute. You could also be the poorest person in this room. And living a two-handed life. So the question isn't how much do you have, but what's being sacrificed to obtain it? Not for survival, but living in a level beyond the means that God has actually provided for you and your family. So what I mean is, you can't look at how much money someone has or even the size of their home to determine if they're reaching with two hands or one hand. Um, More importantly, you shouldn't be trying to determine anyone else's situation. Uh, You should be trying to figure out your own life. Are both your hands busy accumulating stuff? Stuff that won't matter once your body has rotted and returned to the dust. College students, right now in your life, you are setting this pattern. You might be thinking someday when I'm not responsible for college, then, then things will change. But if all you have time to do is school or school and some work, you are setting a pattern that's going to look like that most likely in your life. Uh, so the question is, are you making time so that you can be involved in the, in the mission of your campus ministry or in the life of your local church? Because we live in a culture that's driven by envy and a desire to accumulate more and more. We, as, as followers of Christ, are going to have this decision to make constantly. A decision of what will we work for. Texts like 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, I think are helpful for studying these priorities. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Also in Hebrews 13:5, it reminds us that God will provide for us what we actually need. It reads, keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what, we, what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And Really, though, consider these choices. What's driving them? What drives your pursuit of work of toiling uh, and let me remind you again money is not evil even the verse we just read money is not evil uh, money and the things that money can buy in fact can be a very useful tool with the kingdom of God in focus properly I think the third option we look at here uh, is the most obvious one it's a, a handful of, of quietness just one handful uh, which of course is living contently at the means that God has provided it's what Jesus calls his followers, his people in Matthew 6, 33 to. It's a call to switch their focus from acquiring possessions in life to a, a focus of being active citizens in the kingdom of heaven. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. So let's, let's apply this, they could just get us to think about this. I mean, uh, we've seen those three options, no hands, one hand, two hand. On a scale of of one, where one is lazy and ten is an absolute workaholic, where do you find yourself in life? Because, as we mentioned, every one of us has to make a choice. Uh, be Be a workaholic who's going to sacrifice family, discipleship, peace and joy, and so many other things, so that he or she can possess as much as possible, or be one who works well, who works hard, but is also content with what God provides. See, the image of of one hand of quietness lends itself well for us to ask this question. What is the other hand doing? Is it helping others? Is it comforting and teaching your family? Is it serving in the community? Or is it just relaxing on the back porch after a long day with families and friends and neighbors? So we've said it before, and we'll, we'll say it again, enjoy your work. I think we're seeing that in Ecclesiastes over and over again. Um, because we get up tomorrow and you might be going somewhere. you think you have no idea. You can't enjoy this work. That's a gift of God. The more we begin to understand our, our work with a proper idea, proper part of our design, and not something just in the way of what we really want to do, uh, the better we'll be able to live in a way that glorifies God in it. So enjoy your work. Uh, enjoy it whether it's, it's in the area of business, whether it's the education of, of teaching or learning, whether it's keeping a home or volunteering at a nonprofit or creating beautiful art. Enjoy it. A vocation is a, a holy calling that God has given us as men and women with our time here on earth. And so let me bring this to a close by reminding you that our Savior Jesus Christ was born in the same world we've been talking about here, that under the same sun. And he experienced all the wickedness that we're talking about in this passage. He experienced the injustice of being an innocent, sinless man who was sentenced to death while A clearly guilty man, Barabbas, was set free. He was born in a time into a people who were oppressed by the Romans and who oppressed their own people with extra-biblical requirements. He faced but resisted the temptation to envy others who had easier lives, and Jesus also experienced what it is to die. He pondered his own coming death. He even asked the Heavenly Father that if there were another way, that this cup might pass from him, another way to accomplish forgiveness. And when there wasn't another way, he experienced what it is to be human and and to die. See, we have a Savior who knows what it's like to live life under the sun, and, and he defeated all of that wickedness. And so we live with this expectant hope that one day God will make all things new. And with the encouragement that we are indwelled with his Holy Spirit to live in this fallen world in a way that reflects the gospel that we have believed. Let's pray. God, may we not fold our hands, nor two-fisted walk through this world with more than we can even enjoy. Give us contentment with one hand full of your blessings and one hand to serve in your name. Give us ambition to find solutions for the sake of successful work and not for the pursuit of selfish wealth. Change our hearts as only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.